Good morning. I don't want to break up the conversation. It's been going all night. Um, I'm saying good morning. It may be good night for, 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 for some of you still. Um, thank you very much indeed for coming to this discussion of the 2019 election. What next? And um, a few just housekeeping things at the beginning. This is, uh, we're on record. It's being live streamed. And uh, the hashtag is above me, I hope. Yes. And um, if, uh, if there's a fire alarm, uh, go down the stairs really quickly. We, are, we have a lot to talk about, and, uh, and uh, I very much want this to be a discussion with you all as well. I'm delighted to have here uh, an in-house team, plus uh, Will Tanner, who's head of the think tank Onward and worked for Theresa May for three years, including as deputy head of the policy unit, uh, Gemma Tetlow, our chief economist, Charles Wilkes, sorry, deep in Twitter, um, one of our senior fellows writing a lot on e the economy and business, and Joe Owen, head of our Brexit program, and I'm Bronwyn Maddox, uh, the director here. Um, lots and lots to talk about. We're going to pick up particularly the Brexit, the uh, public finances and the economic battle, and, uh, and some of the questions about the union. But let me just start off with, with everyone just saying, look, what, what is most on your mind um, after last night? What does this mean, Will? Well, thank you, Bronwyn, for inviting me uh, today, and thank you all for turning out after what I'm sure was a long night for many of you as well. Um, I mean, I think there will be lots of commentary after this general election about how ruthless and how highly targeted the Conservative campaign was and how hopeless the Labour campaign was. We're already seeing some of the, <coughs> uh, some of the kind of retribution of, uh, towards the Labour leadership, and we're seeing some of it play out for some of the smaller parties as well. Um, and it is true that I think the Conservative Party ran a campaign that was, uh, was incredibly disciplined um, and uh, ruthlessly predicated on Labour's uh, two key weaknesses. Firstly, Jeremy Corbyn himself. Uh, I heard that on the doorstep myself up in the north of England earlier this week. Um, people genuinely just didn't really trust him to represent the working class and thought he'd taken Labour away from its, its roots and uh, Brexit, where there clearly has been and continues to be uh, quite a strong desire to just get the thing over with. Um, but my main reflection on yesterday evening and just, just seeing those seats kind of tumble in, in places where you never would have previously expected them um, is that I think we're seeing something like uh, a sea change, to use uh, that 1979 phrase, um, on a par with 30 or 40 years ago. Um, where you are seeing quite a significant shift in attitudes within the electorate, um, which I think the Conservative Party understood much better than the Labour Party. Um, and I'm not sure the left was really ready to accept uh, the fact that it had moved quite far away from its traditional voting base, on, especially on kind of social cultural issues. And the Conservative Party was much more willing uh, to move towards that group of voters on, on economic issues. Um, so uh, so to, some, to some degree, I think the Labour Party just didn't get to the game quick enough. Um, uh, and I think it has and, led And the sea change that you're describing? So, so we talk about it being a sea change away from freedom and towards uh, security and belonging. So, um, so we've had 30, 40 years of uh, what you might call liberalising politics, where um, everyone from Roy Jenkins through to Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher have sought to give people more freedom and, and to liberate them, emancipate them in various ways, socially, culturally, economically. Um, we're now moving, I think, to a politics where people seek some kind of protection from rapidly advancing winds of change around the world, whether that's globalisation, automation, immigration to some degree. Um, people feel insecure in various ways and I, they are seeking a politics that mm. can respond to that um, whether you like it or not I think I think that is evident in lots of the data um, and I think to some degree the center of gravity of British politics has shifted um, slightly to the left on economics and slightly to the right on social cultural issues um, and just the final thing I would say is I think it leaves our politics in a very very different place to where it was three or four years ago um, not just in terms of the fact that we have a much uh, more significant majority for, for the governing party, um, uh, an ability for a prime minister to govern unimpeded uh, by coalition partners or um, some of his own backbenchers, but um, also a very different Conservative Party and potentially a very different Labour Party too. So the Conservative Party at the end of this election is the party of the working class, it's the party of apprentices rather than graduates, um, it's to a large degree the party of 
the North and the Midlands. I mean, I was going through the rugby league towns because there's some seats that we've identified as, as kind of crucial ahead of the election. And um, the, the vote share, um, the Labour vote share declined by 11.4% on average in rugby league towns at this general election. It's kind of extraordinary collapse in Labour votes um, in, in some of the places where historically they've kind of taken their votes for granted. Um, and then uh, the Conservative Party is also a hell of a lot older. Um, so, uh, so we've got a kind of, uh, kind of ossification of, of, of the party in, in one sense, and then, and then the Labour Party increasingly becoming more urban, more metropolitan, more liberal in, in some degree. Um, and, uh, and so you are seeing a kind of a shifting of the, of the base of the two different parties, and I think that will change the way those two parties operate in terms of policy and in terms of messaging as well. Thanks very much indeed. Gemma, party of apprentices, not graduates. Yes, yeah, so I, I, mean, I think the result today, with a big majority of the Conservatives, the question really shifts to what is going to be their policy response to the big issues that face the UK. I mean, there's obviously the question of how they approach Brexit, which I'm sure Joe will cover in his remarks. Um, but there's also big questions on the rest of the domestic policy agenda and areas where I think the manifesto sort of ducked making firm commitments on those things. And I think. The question really is, as Will said, what are the expectations of those people in the north of England and the Midlands who have now backed the Conservative Party? In terms of the sort of public finances commitments in the manifesto, um, there was a slight contradiction in some of the things that were said. On the one hand, there was a pledge for world-class public services. Um, there was actually very little extra money on top of what had already been committed in the spending round. Um, so that money may be enough to keep pace with demand over the next few years in some of the services. The money that went to schools is certainly enough to reverse a lot of the cuts that have happened since 2010. But there certainly isn't enough money yet to uh, meet demands in social care. Um, so there is a big question for this uh, government about how they tackle the funding of social care whilst meeting their manifesto commitment not to force people to sell their homes to pay for that. <coughs> Um, and I think actually de delivering that vision for world-class public services alongside what was also in the manifesto of a sort of more traditional conservative pledge for low taxes, um, a, an aspiration to cut taxes in future, although the actual manifesto commitments themselves were a small net tax rise um, because they said that they would cancel a cut in corporation tax uh, and that wouldn't be, uh, select, would be less than offset by the tax cuts that were in the manifesto which were on raising the next threshold. So I think one question is this sort of mismatch between aspirations, world-class public services, which may have sold well to um, an increasingly working-class Tory voter base who may be very reliant on those sorts of public services, um, but with the aspiration for both fiscal discipline and no tax rises, certainly no rises in the main uh, three main taxes that the UK raises, um, I think that will be... <coughs> perhaps more difficult to deliver than uh, was suggested around the time of the spending round and in the manifesto for the reason that when the OBR update their forecasts um, in the next budget, those forecasts are likely to look worse than they did um, when the last forecasts were published in March uh, because the economy has performed less strong, strongly and the, the tax revenues have come in more weakly. Um, there will also be obviously a question about uh, the extent to which that forecast is updated to reflect a different uh, likely outcome of uh, the Brexit process now that the Conservative government has a majority. And I guess that, that depends on what path they now yeah. go down in terms of their aspirations post-Brexit. Um, so I think that is a bit of a gap. And I think there is related to that um, a question about the sorts of broader economic policies that this Conservative government pursue. I think I would agree with Will that there is a sense that there is a greater expectation from the electorate for the government to be more interventionist um, in tackling market failures. Um, perhaps, the, interestingly, Corbyn probably shifted the debate somewhat in that direction, so whilst it didn't manage to win the Labour, government, uh, Labour Party many uh, votes in this election, I think they did raise the prominence of some of those mm. questions about whether those markets are not working. Gemma, thanks very much indeed. And, and Giles, let me come, come to you. You may, might want to pick up on some of those things, particularly yes. whether um, we've had this battle of ideas and we're now going to see a new kind of economic policy from the, the Conservatives. 
Yes, I mean, I, I find that interesting because um, there were certain shifts that have already happened within the Tory sphere, and um, noticing Will nodding along there, a lot of them were obviously under the Theresa May uh, government. And I would question whether necessarily Labour's pressure was all that much to do with it. Some of it was, okay. like Ed Miliband started it with the energy price freeze, uh, but I think Labour, in a sense, broke the steering wheel turning so far left in this election that the idea that the Tories were looking worried at their promise to nationalise broadband, for example, I think is slightly fanciful. I think the Tories realise there's a certain kind of hygiene factor to this. That you need to show that you recognise and you're going to get on with it. But the idea that you need to reflect the gravitational pull of that party is, is not, is not the, the case. Now, but the, the new constituency of Conservative voters, I believe they will have to respect the sorts of instincts they have, as Willis mentioned on something like immigration. Another classic example, uh, he mentioned apprentices rather than graduates. There's a fantastic chart in Tortoise Media about the educational attainment of the constituency versus its Tory voting. There's a very strong correlation, a negative one. So, uh, something we haven't discussed much in the last six months, but the Augur report into changing HE finance towards things like further education and so forth. Is that going to be lifted up? Are the Tories going to say, we, we're not going to win back these um, higher education seats, so perhaps we need to be pouring more money into apprenticeships, further education, the things that actually matter much more in these formerly red wool seats. Uh, one, another question is not my area of Because they're not taking it for granted. I mean, there's something that uh, yeah. Boris Johnson came out and said. And said yeah, well, look, we we know you may have lent us your votes, he said. Yes, and uh, he wants it to be a permanent gift. And one slight area of, um, of dissent, the social conservatism angle. I wonder how permanent this is in the sense that if you removed the salience of Brexit and the salience of Jeremy Corbyn, if you, if you believe, like most people, that's got to be worth a few percentage points. If we had not had those two factors in this election, we might have had a very narrow majority or none whatsoever. And I wouldn't be then quite so sure that the social conservatism would be more than yet another hygiene factor. I want a leader who seems to love my country, but it's not going to be the only reason I vote for you. And he just didn't manage to tick that box, which is quite remarkable. I hope they, they realise that that's something they need to deal with in future. Um, but otherwise, I would I'd strongly agree with Gemma on the fiscal tightness point. The other two parties had 50 or 60 billion pounds more of regular departmental spending to dispose. And they didn't produce that just for frivolous reasons. They thought that's what we needed after 10 years of austerity. The Institute has a fantastic performance track on the performance of individual public services. Below the big headline ones, there are some terrible crises brewing in the prison services, in social care, and so forth. And it would be very interesting to see how the Conservatives' classic tax-cutting instincts are met, are going to meet that challenge. Unless it's by, as, as, um, as Will was hinting at the beginning, but really a, quite a shift after the kind of 30 years that we've had of all kinds of liberalisation uh, into a very different, a more interventionist, more high-spending yes. kind of And I point out they, they kept the energy price cap and they announced this by Britain state aid policy, which is potentially possible mm. in the <coughs> Brexit scenario. Which brings us on to Brexit. Uh, at least first thoughts on Brexit. Joe, what's going to happen? Well, I mean, it seems like an obvious point to make, but we will actually leave the EU. Um, <laughs> we will have a Brexit deadline that does not just come into focus and then get kicked out again. Um, and so obviously, practically, that won't change much on the ground. We will just move into status quo transition. I mean, politically, I think there's a couple of interesting points. Sooner or later, we need to have a debate about actually what this future relationship is going to look like beyond the high-level kind of direction of travel of a free trade agreement. What does that actually mean? Where are we willing to make trade-offs in some detailed areas? What will it mean for some of the new manufacturing business, some of the manufacturing businesses that sit in new Tory seats? What will it mean for the fishing sector that also in some conservative seats and will that play in? There are a lot of big trade-offs that still haven't been made. There's also a very interesting question of what happens to the opposition. I mean, there's an interesting question on that more generally, but what does the opposition to Brexit look like? Do, do they just shift to wanting a soft Brexit? Is that soft Brexit just EEA and customs union? Do they engage with some of the problems in that debate? Um, <coughs> and does it even really manage to get anywhere near the same level of traction in Parliament that we've seen before? Probably not. What will the role of the House of Lords be then in trying to push scrutiny into the Brexit debate and try and maybe push for some procedural changes 
Um, so there'll be a political shift at the top, but of course we will move into this next phase of Brexit, and this big majority will make one of the three tasks much easier. So the three main Brexit tasks, negotiating, legislating, and then implementing. On the legislation front, having big numbers in parliaments will mean, of course, the withdrawal agreement bill in January, but then all of the subsequent Brexit legislation that's been stuck in Parliament, whether that's immigration, agriculture, fisheries, trade, they will find much easier passage through Parliament and then potentially there will be less problems in the UK Parliament at the back end once a deal has been negotiated. But really if you're looking at the next phase, the problems for ratification seem to be much more on the EU side than they do on the UK side given just how complex the EU process is likely to be in the next phase. On the other two tasks, I mean negotiation, um, the EU will likely see a UK Prime Minister that's easier to do business with. They know that if they can agree a deal, Johnson's likely to be able to get it through in Parliament. But will the EU suddenly start bending and being more flexible because Boris Johnson has a majority here in the UK? I mean, I think it's the opposite. They'll see someone who's capable of being a lot more flexible and might be able to swallow some concessions in a way that was more difficult in the first phase given how tight Parliament was. So it might not necessarily work entirely in his favour on the negotiations. And then on implementation, uh, I would say that the number that's probably more relevant than the 80-odd majority is the 27,000 civil servants who are expected to be working on Brexit by March next year. This is a huge practical job um, and a majority doesn't necessarily change the size of the job of changing new custom systems, putting in place new immigration systems, getting business to adapt to the new changes. I mean, unless any of those MPs are whizzes with technology and want to go and help out HMRC. Um, the other thing I think on implementation is the role of business. Business has been very quiet, really, over the last few years. The kind of big Brexit demand that business has put a concerted effort into in the past has been around the transition and timeline. It was something that was seen as kind of politically more neutral than getting into the debate about the right or the wrong kind of Brexit. And obviously the timelines will be something that business groups will be looking at and thinking, how do we square all of this? How do we square a negotiation that is supposed to come into force, a new deal by New Year's Eve next year? And we don't necessarily know what, we don't even know what the mandate for that negotiation is. We don't know when we'll see what the detail of that negotiation is. So that will be a real concern. And I will expect we will start to hear businesses' voice on Brexit more strongly in the new year, first around just the length of time. And then maybe once the fact that we have left is out of the way, they will feel less concerned about voicing opinions on specific types of Brexit, given um, the Prime Minister will be saying that Brexit is done. So what are the chances of another kind of um, cliffhanger with the EU, of an, another con confrontation over the nature of the future relationship by I mean, the, the next deadline, which becomes December 2020? I mean, it's almost certain. I think um, there are still um, some big decisions and big trade-offs that need to be made. If Boris Johnson's priority is timing, um, that means something uh, for what you can do on the level of ambition. It's kind of like anything, if you set your constraint as timeline, other things need to bend. Um, and the EU will likely say, we can get you a deal, and this is what it looks like. Uh, and actually, if you want something else, well, that might take a little bit longer, and we're not sure we can necessarily get that done in time. They were very successful in doing that in the first phase, particularly around the transition period and negotiating the transition period, where the, EU, the UK gave itself a big deadline and the EU kind of uh, the, the big deadline of agreeing it by the March um, European Council, if you remember, after the December European Council of 2017. And the EU kind of sat back, didn't really engage, plonked down a legal text pretty much and said, well, this is the transition. If you want it done by March, it's going to be very difficult to change from this. So you can see if, the, pri if the, the premium on the UK side is on timelines, the EU will use that as part of its leverage to say, OK, timing's the priority. Here's your deal. Um, if you want to change things, then it's going to look really difficult to get you that deal in time. And also, just, just to pick one word, but fish. I mean, if uh, and, and there's going to have to be a degree of unanimity on the EU side, isn't there? So, supposing 
you know, any one of these uh, EU countries that has a lot of coastal communities that are affected by fishing rights and so on, supposing they want to have a big argument about that. Yeah, um, next. Does that stop the whole thing? The next phase of Brexit, if uh, the agreement is anywhere kind of the, the level of ambition that the Prime Minister has set out, it will be a vote and a veto for every member state. So it's much easier for them to try and leverage um, the sorts of interests that they have. And fishing will be right up there. I mean, fishing is one of the things that any agreement almost in the first phase that touched on areas through a fish like Northern Ireland, it was just carved out because they thought we can't get into this yet. It's too sensitive, but the time will come where they'll need to tackle it head on. Well, let's, let's bring it back to business and, and growth and, 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 and the economy. So if, okay, if this event is happening, there's still an awful lot we don't know about it and about the future relationship. But the, the manifestos, uh, all of them, tended to assume that Brexit, would, if it was going to happen, was going to happen in a way that didn't really knock the um, economy. Um, how, should we, um, how, sh how should we look at what the Conservatives are now promising to do about growth and investment? And what are the main things that we would like to know? You think? Well, I think there is a question about what the economic strategy of the next government looks like. Um, uh, now, obviously, partly that's related to our... Uh, you mean the manifesto didn't tell us? Well, I, I think the manifesto sketched out a kind of direction of travel, but it, yeah. it, um, it didn't go into a huge amount of detail. And I, having been involved in the 2017 manifesto, I can kind of understand why. Um, I, um, uh, I, I, do, I, no, I do think... And I think there were some really big choices about the type of economy that we want to build in this country, and... Uh, I broadly think that most commentators have got uh, the government's intention on the economy wrong, actually. Lots of people were very fearful when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister that, uh, that he wanted to kind of introduce some Singapore on Thames style, uh, style economy that was kind of deregulatory, deregulating and um, uh, liberalising in various ways. I, think, um, I don't think it's entirely the opposite, but I think, um, uh, as I said, kind of before, I think the direction of travel is towards greater levels of intervention. If you read Don Cummings' blogs, he talks about... I was wondering uh, when the name was going to come yes, up. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah. uh, he talks about kind of building regional uh, clusters through uh, government R&D and uh, using universities as anchor institutions and building the kind of intersection between uh, sector and place, uh, which was really at the heart of what I think... Charles and I were uh, intending to do to some degree with the industrial strategy when we were in Downing Street. So um, I think there is, there is uh, the kernel of an economic strategy there, which is much more place-based um, and more interventionist uh, by some degree than the current uh, economic strategy that people associate with the Conservative Party, which is kind of the Osborneite long-term economic plan. Um, but it still needs to be developed, and I think... Uh, there is a lot to play for in that space, um, both for specific parts of the country, including those places that, uh, that have just um, seen Conservative MPs returned for the first time potentially in their history. I mean, I was in, in Workington on Monday. Um, uh, Workington, just to use one example, you, Workington has a, uh, a local council budget of £14 million, pounds, um, uh, and it's been promised £25 million through the Stronger Towns Fund. Uh, through for economic infrastructure. Now, that is game-changing amounts of money for a town that has been pretty hard on its luck since uh, since the steelworks uh, kind of closed um, some time ago, and it's got Sellafield, but it doesn't have very much other employment. And so you can, you can imagine the type of kind of seed investment uh, that things like the Stronger Towns Fund do, and then you can imagine it on a much grander scale with kind of the development of clusters around, around key sectors in specific parts of the country. Mm -hmm. Charles, just uh, to jump back to you on this. Do you feel that there is a sort of a change of economic strategy coming in the hand of um, Dominic Cummings, who yeah. masterminded much of this election, is, is, is really going to be seen? Uh, he's, he will clearly have all the political capital he needs if he wants to imprint his vision. I mean, that, that's, I'm, sh I'm sure, the way it will work within government if he's interested in it. Um, I agree with Will's broad characterisation of this now being an interventionist, attempted to geographically redistributionist, um, kind of government. The thing that my sort of whinging former advisor current think tank wonk point is nobody ever appreciates just how difficult it is. The politicians are very keen on saying, well, I'm going to be the first one to notice that we've got regional disparities in this country and I'm going to set up X, Y, or Z. I believe the Institute for Government, amongst others, have over the years done lovely little time charts of the number of different regional uh, institution creations and destructions we've gone through. And the idea that um, finally I'm going to be the one who grabs this. Now, 
what is he, what is he going to have that Gordon Brown and John Prescott didn't have when they set up the regional development agencies, for example? What is it that he knows that isn't known by Richard Florida or um, the, the author Moretti about, re, about this sort of regional growth rebalancing? Because we keep coming up against timeless verities of if you just redistribute using masses of money, you do crowding out, you end up with the political bias that is in, intrinsic in all sorts of interventionism. You often have a classic... Um, struggle between supporting places that are already mm. excellent and world-beating versus the places that seem to be more deserving of money. Even that very impressive sum of money that Will mentioned there, it works out at about £400 a head in, in a capital injection kind of amount. It's not the sort of thing that was under the RDAs capable of actually turning around. Um, so I'm still yet to see a proper philosophy of it. What people tend to resort to is saying we need more infrastructure spending. And if you hear anyone complain about the Leeds Transpennine route to Manchester, clearly there have been some grotesque lacks of investment in the past that might make a difference, but we honestly do not know how to do it, and it normally impacts over 5, 10, 15 years. And at the same time, these are also manufacturing places that will be extremely badly hurt by any kind of a non-alignment Brexit, which I get the feeling is one of the Prime Minister's very enduring principles. He does not want an aligned, uh, a sort of a, a vassal state alignment to European regulations. So I'm, I'm still not sure they have a working vision there, just a, a broad sort of emotional urge towards mm. interventionism. Gemma, mm. where do you think the investment could work? I mean, what, what are you looking for in this? Um, I think a few questions around the investment. That the manifesto talks about some really quite big increases in the investment over the next few years. So one question is, can they spend that money well? And can they do it in such a way that they don't simply ramp up the cost of doing this? Because there is limited capacity in the UK at the moment to actually build big infrastructure. So that is quite a concern for them. Um, I, I generally agree with Giles, essentially, that there almost certainly are sensible investment projects that could be done in the UK that would bolster the supply side of our economy. Um, we have had a period of underinvestment. The UK always scores very low in terms of the quality of its infrastructure. So there almost certainly are things out there that could help, um, but doing that well will be challenging. And I think there is a, a question in this, including around the sort of place-based thing of whether we're talking about a very centrally driven model. So Westminster mm. decides what the right projects are and throws the money out there, or something more like what I think many of the cities and other regions around England are hoping for, which is much more devolution of power um, and putting those decisions into local mm. hands. Mm. Great. Let's come on quickly to the, the question of the union, which is dominating a lot of the press coverage this morning, absolutely rightly, in our view. In fact, we're in the, on the last dots and commas of a report upstairs on uh, how uh, it might be possible to have a, a second independence referendum in Scotland uh, and, and for that to seem legitimate or what would have to be done to run that well, if uh, the, this collision that seems to be building between Nicola Sturgeon saying, look, I've got a mandate, at least for a referendum, if not for independence, and Boris Johnson very likely saying, no, I'm not going to give you permission to have that, well, you know, if, if that collision breaks in, in, in one direction. And we've been doing a lot on, um, on, on, on devolution, both in um, uh, the, the three nations of, uh, devolved nations of, of the UK. Joe, where do, you, where do you think, how quickly is this going to come up? Well, I think, I mean, you're right in the, the, the top sense that a lot of people are kind of asking, is this the election that will prompt Scotland leaving two unions? Um, and obviously, it's going to be a big battle over the next, uh, possibly just days and weeks, but certainly months over kind of political legitimacy for a referendum. So under the Scotland Act, the union is a reserved competence, which means it needs... Um, legislation in Westminster and Holyrood in order to have a kind of legally binding referendum. Um, I think our view was that after 2016 and the 2016 uh, Scottish Parliament election, there was an argument maybe there was a bit of a mandate. Um, after this election, um, that call for having, a, you know, that strength of argument for having a mandate for another referendum gets stronger still. And then by the 2021 Scottish Parliament elections, it might become pretty hard to ignore, um, and this kind of low-level tension, well, it's not going to be low-level at all, but this tension bubbling over, there are going to be some really difficult points, actually, where it will come to a head throughout the Brexit process, just because of how difficult, uh, the difficult questions the Brexit process asks 
of the Union. So we're likely to see Scotland withhold consent, not only to the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, but probably all of the other bits of Brexit legislation. Wales have threatened to do similar. So that will be quite a big moment. Um, and then there is this question of the common frameworks, the UK internal market. What is um, the patchwork that will knit together the Union in all of these areas without the EU framework? And there are so many areas that are still needing agreement, that are still up in the air. And if this is just one big battle between Scotland and Westminster about the right for a referendum, that can all just get sucked into that process. So it's not just going to be about the high-level political arguments, but in some of the really knotty technical questions that the government is going to have to grapple with before the end of any transition period, they will need to come up with some constructive and some decent cooperation with Scotland in order to be able to properly answer those. So it could be a really big headache. And in this, Scotland holds quite a lot of cards. As you say, this is a hugely important point. If it wants to say no to some of these technical things, it can really cause an awful lot of trouble for the progress of, of, of Brexit. Well, this is one of the big, the big fights, isn't it, that um, Scotland <coughs> is concerned that when people talk about taking back control, it's about taking back control to Westminster. And actually, if you look at the areas uh, where there is devolved competence, a lot of them are in the areas of EU competence. I mean, the EU is the perfect framework in which to do devolution in because you could say, yes, Scotland, you can have total control of agriculture, but by the way, the EU will constrain what you can do and how far you can diverge. But if you remove those constraints, you need to have a conversation about how you keep the UK internal market functioning. And Scotland will be saying, um, well, hang on, you've fully devolved those issues to us, so why are you starting to legislate for this in Westminster? That's not the agreement. Um, and so you'll start to see yeah, some, really, um, some really knotty technical issues, but very knotty political issues. Will, will the um, Conservative and Unionist Party turn out to have broken the union? So I think there is a, um, an enormous battle coming for the future of the union. Um, uh, I fully expect the Conservative and Unionist Party to be uh, fighting tooth and nail uh, for the continuation of the union, and I, I don't see any let-up in support for the union, despite what some people say. Uh, about uh, this government, um, but I do think I do think the threat as a result of this general election is is real, um, and I think it's a lot more real than it was in 2014. Actually, I think um, uh, having been relatively close uh, last time, and some of the things that have happened since, not least Brexit, um, there will be uh, a huge amount of political energy expended on. Uh, on both sides of the argument, and the two things. And conceivably, money as well. Expecting some of these promises of money. Yeah. To yeah. To, to some degree. I mean, yeah. I think there are there are two two things with the with the union question. Firstly, there's the kind of political question. Um, you have competing mandates as a result of this general election. I mean, Boris Johnson quite legitimately say that he has a huge mandate from the British people, all of them, um, to uh, to deliver his manifesto, which included a pretty iron, uh, ironclad commitment to the union. Um, you can also see the SNP already claiming that this is a uh, a demand from the people of Scotland for uh, independence. Or for a referendum. I mean, I well, think Nicola Sturgeon has put at least yes. said she hasn't assumed that everyone voting for the SNP is voting for um, yes. independence, but, but has said, look, it's a mandate for a, yes, a referendum. Yes, indeed. And, and, and so, but you, you do have these competing mandates, and I think um, uh, there are questions about how far uh, or how long Boris Johnson can put off the SNP's mandate, basically. I think there are some interesting questions there. So firstly, there's the, yes, the salmon trial starting in January, which I think will deplete the SNP's political uh, capital to, to quite a large degree and distract them for the first few months of next year. And there's also the outstanding question about what happens with a future Labour leader. I mean, we've had a Labour leadership that's been very acquiescent to the idea of a second referendum for the last few months and years. Uh, it may well be that whoever replaces Jeremy Corbyn is uh, completely the opposite side of the spectrum and, uh, and may well support Boris Johnson in, in delaying any kind of referendum. And then there's the kind of practical question as well. If we have left, Bre uh, left the EU, if Brexit has happened, um, does that fundamentally change some of the dynamics of the second referendum? Because it certainly changes some of the economics um, yeah. and some of the politics or the kind of international agreements that would need to take place post uh, a putative independence vote. So I think, I think there are actually a lot more challenges to a second referendum and potential independence than most people are giving credit for this morning, but it is quite a real risk. Mm. 
And those international questions are ones that could play quite quite big. I mean, Scotland can't assume it could go into the EU. We, yeah. One of the points we're making in the paper we're about to put out is that, well, there, there is a, the UN has recognized the right to self-determination of people. That is not the same thing as the right to secession. And countries are very, very wary about giving uh, backing to the principle that bits of countries can, can walk away. Uh, and Spain would be one of those. Let's have, so, let's have some questions, because I think there, there are going to be um, lots of questions. Right, there are already. Um, Middle there, and I'm going to take several at once. And panel members have the Brexit morning, uh, the election morning uh, uh, luxury of de uh, deciding who they um, go for. Okay. I'm Matthew Hamlin, uh, House of Commons. A sort of general question of the panel we haven't talked at all about Northern Ireland, I think. Yeah. I'd be really interested in views, um, both in terms of devolution. Yeah, another independence, potential independence conversation, and um, also what happens to them economically, financially, and all the issues just discussed. Great, thanks. Let's have another one. All right, right in the front here. Oh, so, sorry, has someone? No, no, no. Yeah, so thanks. Um, yeah, please. Yeah, hi, Frank Langford from National Public Radio. Are there lessons for Democrats? Uh, looking at their own situation in the United States when we see the red wall collapse we, We're talking about people looking for security as will was talking about are there lessons you think that people in the United States might take from this election? Great. You mean specifically US Democrats? Yeah, yeah. I mean we're all Democrats <laughs> yeah. Okay. As far as I know. All right, let me take one more So uh, a British Prime Minister has a moment when they get into office with a big majority when they could reform the cabinet, possibly rearrange Whitehall. What do you think is going to happen this weekend? Will Boris stick with the existing cabinet who were sort of locked in a box during the campaign? Or will he change the guard for a four-year term? And what about Whitehall Ministries? It's an IFG specialty you should know. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, we, if you'd like to tell us who you are, you're very oh, welcome. Sorry, I'm Pat on EVLSE. Okay, thanks very much. And, okay, reshuffle and ministries, Democrats uh, in the US and um, Northern Ireland. Joe, you want to pick uh, any of Sure. Yes. Um, on Northern Ireland, I mean, I imagine uh, the DUP, as will a few others, be wondering why they did not accept Theresa May's deal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's an extraordinary spectacle of a strong hand played badly. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of one of the big questions from all line is exactly what this withdrawal agreement will mean. And there has been lots of, I think, generous interpretations of it throughout um, the election campaign. But the time for general, uh, generous interpretations will be over considering uh, according to the withdrawal agreement. And if the transition is not extended, that needs to be in place by... Um, again next Christmas. We still don't know actually what it means in practice. So much of that was kicked into the next phase to be agreed by the Joint Committee. Again, that's likely to be a very contentious process that gets linked into the broader negotiations because of what it will mean for exactly just how thick that border is that would exist uh, in the Irish Sea. But you know, the general point I would make on the, the Irish protocol as part of the withdrawal agreement, I mean, I maybe this is uh, putting my neck out, but I don't think there's really a snowflakes chance in hell it can be in place by December next year if you think that, A, we don't know what the details of it is yet. B, we're starting to put a border in place where none exists. There has been very little, if any, preparation for a border there, given it's been the expressed red line of the UK government for so long that there would be no checks in the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland uh, and, um, and Great Britain. And just the technical challenge of building those new systems, lots of which don't really exist you know, anywhere else in the world, this rebate mechanism that will be in place, um, and also the need to get Northern Irish businesses ready is a huge challenge. Saying there will be 12 months and the details we're not clear yet on and we're not sure when we'll be clear on, I think um, will mean there'll be some really difficult questions around that. On rearranging Whitehall, um, I think it is our view that um, the time is coming to uh, end the Department for Exiting the EU um, and to actually roll that in to the Cabinet Office. Obviously, the Department plays a number, well, all of its functions are critical, 
the coordination of around negotiations, around legislation, and around implementation, I think it was an awkward fixture within Whitehall in the first phase because of the political level and having a Secretary of State uh, in charge, but when all of the decisions were being made by the Prime Minister. And it doesn't seem like Boris Johnson, who, I mean, if you look around his cabinet, this was run as a presidential campaign. There are no real big hitters that will be challenging him. He will be making the running in the cabinet. Um, whether he's going to delegate those kinds of decisions to a Secretary of State. And so as part of a reflection of the awkwardness uh, in the first phase, some of the challenges that may, I mean, May lost two of her Dexu um, Secretaries of State, uh, and then the other one, I think within minutes of arguing for a government motion, went and voted against it in Parliament. So it was clearly a kind of complicated political process. Mm -hmm. And that also then just feeds down into the rest of Whitehall, just around the ease of coordination, the ease of information flow. Um, so I think the time is coming for the end of Dexu, but not yet. I don't think today or tomorrow would be the right time, not least because you will need a team of ministers to take the withdrawal agreement bill through Parliament. Um, and actually having a full kind of departmental team of ministers will help that um, and give you some time to properly think about what these structures for phase two looks like. Too often machinery of government changes are done as a kind of very quick political fix to signal priorities, and then the machine spends however long trying to work out how the hell you actually make that work, and it's a drag on pro productivity. And uh, I think if, if there's any year in which you can't really afford a drag on Brexit productivity, it's probably next year. Yeah, and, and we, uh, there may be some quick changes that have been floated, like. I guess one of the controversial ones will be folding DFID back into the FCO, which seems to have flickered across it, but we are not sure. We're not expecting dramatic reshuffles quickly. Well, we'll have to see. I mean, there's a lot of talk that may come in uh, weeks, not, not days. Um, but we argue against many, many of these um, things. Um, Giles, you want to pick up? Yeah, I, I, when I did a phys, uh, an MBA, they, the most in, instructive case studies were the ones in failure. And I think from that point of view, the Institute for Government ought to get the DUP in to lecture on how they actually did this, because I, I do think that's quite incredible. Um, and it does somewhat go against the fight tooth and nail for the union point that Will made there. I think there are very different uh, verdicts to be reached on the future of the union with Scotland and the other one, because a land border the is clearly being a very... Northern Ireland. Yes, yes. Because a, la yeah, yeah, yeah. a, land, a land border yeah. is clearly an incredibly important fact in trying to deal with these things. In terms of the reshuffle stuff, I mean, one of the interesting questions we've been asking for many months is whether there's going to be some kind of conflict between the deeper instincts of the cabinet, which are generally meant to be small state, and the new direction. It's one of the sort of parlour games that can you get... Liz Truss uh, to, to love the idea of a big spending intervening um, government, for example. And uh, I tend to see the Conservative Party magnificently in the last five or six years as incredibly protean in just choosing the policy directions that are going to lead to power. They're an incredibly good power-seeking party. But I wonder how much that might actually break. And um, so I wouldn't be surprised if Johnson wanted to choose people who had more of their heart in the new model of doing things and that there might be a little bit of blood spilt. After all, he did, he was very happy to spill blood when he first came in, in to a quite remarkably brutal way, and you have an enormous amount of political capital right at the beginning. I would argue against machinery of government changes, even if some of the current structures are very unwieldy. I think one of the ones that we often wonder about is whether we need a, a more focused attempt on the net zero target. If they're absolutely sincere about that, they need that to be an absolute cross-governmental affair and it can't be just a subset of one or two of the departments. Yeah. As for lessons for the US Democrats, um, I mean right now all, all of us sort of centrists are sort of shell-shocked and assuming that therefore the centrist instincts are wrong about everything. I think you can go too far on that but one of the, um, the lessons all of the centrists need to learn is, is not to sort of lecture or patronize people who have different opinions which certainly must have been one of the reasons for the Trump success of 2016 and at times it's felt like a feature of our political debate too. Well, any thoughts for Democrats' despair? Or? 
Well, I think, um, I mean, obviously, the US and UK political systems are, are very different, and I think are in also slightly different places. But, um, but I do think that there is something really interesting in the fact that um, both the US and the UK, the centre of political gravity, is slightly to the left of the, on the economy and slightly to the right <coughs> on, on culture. Um, and, uh, I mean, Giles talks about centrists, but I've always found the term centrism or, cent or kind of centrists slightly... Uh, slightly strange actually because it, it, the, those people who define themselves as centrists tend to see themselves as slightly to the right on the economy and slightly to the left, slightly liberal on cultural issues. Um, I think of Blairism or, or liberal Democrats or uh, um, people on the left of the Conservative Party when actually I think uh, the centre um, or the common ground as Keith Joseph would have called it um, is uh, slightly to the left on the economy and slightly to the right. So in some ways, I think the Conservative here. Party is actually here yeah. And, yeah. and to some degree in the US, actually. Yeah. And, and I think both the Republicans and the Conservative Party are moving to, towards the kind of economic centre of gravity of the, rather, than, rather than moving towards kind of corporatism or, or, or uh, kind of radical interventionism. Um, and uh, that is very interesting. The other thing that I think is really fascinating um, in this country and in the US, I think... Uh, the kind of left-wing party, Democrats and Labour, are to some degree abandoning their working-class roots in the pursuit of liberal uh, and, to some degree, identity politics. And I think that is a real mistake um, because I think uh, the majoritarian position of both countries is, uh, um, uh, well, as I say, slightly to the right on social cultural issues. It's not instinctively liberal on lots of those issues uh, and so there's a kind of diminishing pool of voters to attract in, in, in both the US and, and so the UK. They've lost them. We could have a whole seminar yeah, on this but no, I mean, anyway, they're, they're losing them on the, yeah. on the, on, on the cultural yeah, exactly. side. In, in, exactly. Interesting. Gemma, your thoughts? Just to pick up on the, the sort of economic implications for Northern Ireland obviously most economic modelling suggests that increasing trade barriers between the UK and the EU is going to put a drag on the economy. Um, and that's mainly about non-tariff barriers rather than tariff barriers. Um, and those issues are particularly acute for Northern Ireland, which is obviously the part of the UK that is most heavily integrated into the EU. So as we go through these questions about what is the model of Brexit that this government wants to pursue, I think some of those questions are particularly acute for Northern Ireland and its economy um, because of the very heavy integration with Ireland and the very large number of pretty small businesses in Northern Ireland that are going to be affected and the sorts of costs that might be imposed on them depending on exactly what sort of um, arrangements we have um, with them. Obviously there is this slight nuance that at least in the withdrawal agreement the idea is that Northern Ireland is sort of in the EU customs territory as well as being in the UK customs territory but that does then have the additional question of the non-tariff barriers between Northern Ireland and Great Britain as well, which could have an impact. Mm. Um, I mean, I think we've sort of covered the machinery of government changes. I mean, our more recent assessments are very heavily drawn on your own work, um, Pat, for which we're very grateful. Um, the broadly, our sort of view there is that while machinery of government changes can be beneficial in helping you to either focus on new priorities um, or achieve synergies across different areas, um, you need to think about the costs that are involved in making those changes. We've sort of come to the view that actually the Department for Exiting the EU should be um, dissolved um, once we get past 31st of January for the reasons that it has caused this sort of confusion about quite what its role is. Um, so we think there's there that the benefits outweigh the costs. In the other areas, and I think Bronwyn's right, the only one that's really been explicitly talked about um, is the idea of merging DFID back into the Foreign Office. Um, the creation of DFID was sort of seen as a success in the sense of um, allowing a, a focus on international development that didn't get crowded out by um, the UK's sort of other overseas priorities, but there may be a, a shift in this government's approach to um, how it wants to balance those two things. So that would be the argument for merging them together. Mm. And on Northern Ireland, we're going to come back to this a lot. I spent quite a bit of time there this autumn, and uh, we're doing a lot of, of work on it. I think extraordinarily hard for the UK government to manage well. I remember one chap, a Protestant I spoke to uh, just, just a few weeks ago, saying, you kind of sad sadness. Uh, the Brits don't want us, the Irish don't want us, and a uh, sense of isolation <laughs> um, uh, uh, really, really stuck with me. Some more questions. 
Okay, um, lots and lots and lots. All right, um, let's go a second row here and then on the aisle. My name is Nancy Andrea Buller. I work for the press office of the Embassy of Greece. Uh, could you comment uh, a bit on the immigration policy that we're expecting from this government, especially, uh, especially about EU immigrants? Um, so far, the Tories have said that they will, they want EU uh, immigrants from EU to have the same uh, status as immigrants from other countries, from the rest of the world. Do you think there could be a change in that? Thank you very much indeed. On the aisle, and then and then behind you. Uh, sorry, there's two on the aisle. Yeah, so both of you. Thanks, Nick Westcott and Soas. Do you think the Prime Minister is going to be tempted to align much more closely with the US than with the EU, both politically and economically? Great question. Thanks. Uh, Jim Robinson, Government of Jersey. So the. Um, Conservative manifesto is very clear that there will be no extension to the transition period, but we've already heard from Joe that there are some practical differences in getting everything done by the end of 2020. Do, do you think that a relatively thumping majority means that, a, that an extension is possible? Great. Um, thanks. And, and, um, all quite Brexity. Um, Joe, let me come, come to you. And let's have brief. I want to try and get another batch in. Okay. Okay. Um, Immigration question, uh, I would be very surprised if, having left, we then differentiate between EU and rest of the world in terms of immigration. There'll be a single system. Um, there will, of course, be some differentiation at all levels in the way that any immigration system does around level of risk, countries that we offer visa-free visits to, um, but the kind of pure for business, for work, uh, and for settlement, I think it would be a surprise if there was any difference. There's still a lot of unanswered questions around exactly what the Australian points-based system actually looks like. Uh, I would recommend, if you're interested, there's a very good 2006 white paper called the points-based system, um, which I think will sketch out probably quite well the kind of thing to expect, but of course encompassing EU as well. I mean, the other big task on... EU for, for the UK is the settlement scheme and actually implementing the withdrawal agreement even though it's passed. We've started to do some of that but actually the really difficult decisions and the difficult policy decisions for the government will come at the back end of that when they see just how many people haven't got status and what they do as that deadline approaches <coughs> even if the government plays an absolute blinder and covers 90% of those eligible and they get status. 10% and three, of three and a half million is a lot of people who will not have status in the UK. And given the way our immigration enforcement system works, that will be a real cause for concern. Um, and then on um, transition extension, I think politically having a big majority obviously makes it easier to swallow the extension uh, in July. I think there's a question though of, it will require quite a lot of political pain to do it pushing back the deadline, having made a manifesto commitment not to. There will be a negotiation around the UK's continued financial contributions before Dece beyond December 2020 into the new multi-annual funding framework. And the EU have suggested that it is around that period of time they would like to see an agreement on fish. Um, so it's already stacking up and it will be quite a difficult political decision. Um, not least if you say Boris Johnson has shown that his revealed preferences go right up to the deadline, wait for a deal to pop out, and if you can say my deal versus no deal to Parliament, then great. And actually both of those things um, point towards just moving through that deadline. I don't think it's clear that that deadline is the last opportunity for any kind of extension or even just unilateral measures from the, the two sides that would mean there's a kind of de facto implementation period. But I do think that the longer it takes to give business certainty, about when things will change and what will change, the less value any additional time has. I mean, you know, Joe, the value... Joe, let me, um, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no, I just want to get in a couple, a couple more. Let me ask, who's got strong feelings on the US versus uh, the can EU? I, yes, I go mean, ahead. I mean, this might sound like sort of the dying breath of one of the sort of slaughtered Europhiles lying around the battlefield, and maybe it's better if we all get put to the sword. But uh, I, one point I'd want to make is, well, two points. Economic geography is still a thing. You can't vote economic geography out of existence. It is still the case that when you're three or 4,000 miles away from a place that your economic ties are lesser. And that, this is a very iron rule of 
of um, economics and trade and so forth. So it still does not make sense to try to align with a place that also we have no practice in knowing how to influence that place. So that place being the United being States. Being the United right. States. So <laughs> making so, it very far off. Yeah. Well, yes. Um, <laughs> but in terms, but in terms of e economic geography, it is, um, and it's also a place that's very, very sort of um, inward-looking itself in terms of having quite a low export dependency. <laughs> it still matters so much more having those ties with Germany. I would also say that culturally, uh, we we're as close to Europe as we were yesterday, and. Um, and that's still going to be rather important. If you look at the way we run our health system, if you look at the way we run our prison system, our views on things like gun crime and so forth, we are still, I would argue, a very European country, and it's uncomfortable to try to align with one which is very different from us in a lot of other regards. Great. Let's squeeze in two more, and it's going to be really last, last uh, quick comments from the, the panel. Okay, um, over here, and, um, and, uh, and, and uh, just there. Yes, you. And I really apologise to the others, but there's obviously going to be lots and lots of election chatter. Go ahead. Um, Emily Cutler, so you've already talked about the Conservatives having to make, like, spending lots more money, but that doesn't align with their fiscal rules, especially if they want to be a low-tax <coughs> government. How do you think they're going to square that circle? Thank you very much. Yes, and uh, Bjarne Nguyen from the Danish Daily, Christa Dabla. Um, to coin an old phrase, strong and stable. How strong and stable is uh, uh, Boris Johnson's majority? Or are there some fault lines you can already pinpoint now in that new big conservative parliament group? Terrific. Thank you very much from this end. Mm. Um, Micro. Uh, so I entirely agree with you. I think there is the manifesto does not square that circle. Um, the To sketch out the problems, um, I think the Conservatives have clearly felt after 10 years of cuts to many areas of public services that actually the problems that Giles was alluding to that our performance tracker highlights were so acute that actually they needed to commit to putting more money into key areas of public services and to commit to supporting those. Um, but I, that is likely to need money beyond what has already been pledged. Um, on So the other, where do you get that money from? Um, the only options really are to think about tax rises. Um, we are going to put out a report on Sunday, um, making some suggestions to a new chancellor or a returning chancellor um, about how you might do that, um, given that this is an area that um, tax reform is an area that governments have always found quite difficult. Um, they have certainly tied, constrained themselves hugely with the pledge not to raise the main rates of income tax NICs and VAT. Um, those are the three broadest base taxes, the least distortive ways of raising revenue in the UK. So they have tied their hands to look um, for much more small tweaks around the system. Um, you could, I mean, obviously the, the approach that George Osborne took as Chancellor was to cut working age benefits. Um, it seems extremely hard for them to go there again. Um, Boris Johnson made the point early on in the election campaign of saying that the benefits freeze is coming to an end in April. That wasn't new policy, that has long been planned. Um, but he clearly didn't want to extend that benefits freeze. Um, and there's been ongoing um, difficulties in making some of the cuts that were announced in 2015, particularly to uh, disability benefits. So I don't think there is any easy answer to this question. I mean, the sort of final option is, can you get economic growth going much more strongly to bring in more tax revenues than the forecasts currently expect to just make this much easier? Um, but there, I think we get back to the long-standing questions about how do you boost productivity growth in the UK that have been pretty intractable and most of the solutions give you benefits in sort of 10 years time they're not going to unlikely to deliver very quick benefits. And he perhaps was not putting as much weight on this as, as, as John McDonnell was in say all kinds of things are going to be paid for there by this productivity. It's, it's really really quickly. Um, so we'll I'll come back on the strongest stable point I mean I think yeah. this, this, this parliamentary conservative party um, uh, is uh, pretty stable, actually. I suspect there was a relatively unified coalition, especially around the main issue of the day, Brexit. Uh, all candidates signed up to Boris's deal, and, um, uh, and most of the candidates that I know personally are more on the kind of Brexit end of the spectrum as well, so they are kind of um, aligned on that front. And I think, actually, on, on kind of domestic policy, um, there is uh, kind of growing levels of 
uh, agreement within the party about what needs to be done, especially given the type of seats that the Conservative Party has just won. And actually, the really big challenge for the Conservative Party isn't uh, kind of big fiscal policy, it isn't uh, necessarily Brexit policy. The big political challenge is how do you now satisfy a load of voters that you've never had to satisfy before? And how do you really honour the vote that those people have just lent you um, and make sure that you deliver on the things that those, those people and communities want? And actually, for a Conservative Party that historically, at least in recent history, has been um, more kind of small state liberal, that is a really big challenge. So strong and stable until the next election. John? Yes, and I would, I would add to, to Will's point. I mean, people are often looking for comfort in wanting to see cracks in this Tory armour. They will say, well, look at 87. Margaret Thatcher won a fantastic third victory, and then within three years, crisis, turmoil, unpopular domestic policy, and she was gone. But even though Neil Kinnock was not the the chosen one who was going to lead Labour back into power. That was a hell of a lot better opposition than the one we look like currently having, where they're having a huge row about whether they were not left-wing enough, they need to keep Corbynism going, the momentum thing. You need to have, for a government to be scared and heading towards the centre, you need to have an opposition that's scaring it. And I can't currently envisage <coughs> the Boris Johnson-led government being scared of whatever opposition looks like coming along which means it's going to be incredibly strong and stable and doing what it wants to do. For me, the, the, the biggest row of the night between Alan Johnson and... Yes. and, um, and Spectacular. Uh, John Lanceman of Momentum. Joe, quickly, um, anything goes on through? Fault on fault lines, I think we're likely to see the next phase of Brexit will be special interests in a way that we haven't seen before, just the breadth and depth of what will be covered. Um, but Boris Johnson will probably think that... Uh, 80-odd is enough to give them a little bit of a cushion. Everyone, apologies, I couldn't get more questions in. Thank you for the terrific questions. Thank you for coming out on a morning when you may have been up all night and more to be continued. Thanks very much to the panel. <laughs>